Hello and welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton, co-founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. Today's conversation is about family wealth and the mindset it takes to succeed in a role that requires steadiness, perspective, and most of all, trust. Stress and anxiety tend to show up in our relationships with money and in our health. And today we're gonna touch on a lot of that and about how a professional stays focused for the benefit of the people who she serves. Now in this podcast, I interview a spectrum of entrepreneurs and thinkers to learn principles of leadership. My goal is to help you use these ideas to make more confident decisions in your profession and in your community. In this episode, we're gonna learn how an advisor's personal relationship with money influences the way that she provides advice, what leading an advisory firm can teach us about the habits of successful investors, and the mindsets that support healthy habits around health and wealth. My guest today, a very special guest, is my business partner, Katie Brown. How are you doing, Katie? Great. Dennis, it's a pleasure to be invited onto your podcast. This is really exciting. Thank you. I'm happy to take some of our conversations public because you and I have been talking for, for many, many years now about what it takes to sit in front of clients and advise them on some of the most important decisions that they make. And by way of introduction, Katie is a certified financial planner a chartered financial consultant. And as I mentioned, she's co-founder along with me of, of Morton Brown Family Wealth, which is a fiduciary advisory firm based here in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Katie earned an economics and finance degree from York College. She started as a financial planner and came to the Lehigh Valley in 2003. And for 15 years, she led financial planning and operations and compliance as a partner at an advisory firm, earning her certified financial planner designation along the way. And her expertise really developed in investments, retirement, taxation, insurance, and estate planning. Katie's a graduate of the 2011 Leadership Lehigh Valley class. She's a member of the Estate Planning Council of the Lehigh Valley, and she's also a board member at Valley Youth House. Katie has been recognized by Investment News as a 2019 40 Under 40 honoree. She was also named to Lehigh Valley Business's 2019 40 Under 40 list and is a 2015 Woman of Influence. Katie, it's, it's great to be able to talk with you. I, I wanted to start off today by one of the first things that we did when we started thinking about launching a business and, and uh, really early on, we've done behavioral assessments over the years to figure out what motivates us, what some of our preferences. We used a, um, a DISC assessment to figure out where some of our strengths and compatibilities were, how we prefer to work. And there was a motivations part of that assessment. I thought it was fascinating where the financial motivations came up for you specifically. T- tell me wh- whereabouts on the list of six motivators that the uh, the financial motivation came in. Yeah, so that's the utilitarian, putting the priority in the amount of money or wealth you accumulate over your lifetime and, and how important that is to the different things that you do. So for utilitarian, and I have to remember it back, but it was three or four, I think, on my list of six. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, I think you were around three or four as well. Right. And our feedback on that was most people in the financial industry have it as number one. Their, they, their relationship with money is, is really a higher priority. We were kind of fair to middling, uh, not, not quite there. But you had much more of an emphasis on the social and theoretical, the social being interpersonal, the relationship side of it. Tell me how that plays into the relationship between money and the, the social element of what you do as an advisor. Absolutely. You know, I I think our job, the work that we do is so much more than the money conversation. It really is about 
the relationships. It's about helping our clients to build healthy relationships with money and also amongst themselves, mm-hmm. like helping to bring that a, that awareness because the money is only the support of what everything else that they're trying to achieve in their lives. And so the idea of that, that social aspect and being present for those conversations and learning about individuals and the relationships within their family and what's important to them, that stuff has, has always been a, a large motivator for me. That was something else I, I think in the disc was that, that really high eye, which often goes hand in hand, that influencing. So to kind of connect on the, on the relationship or personal level. And I think that's, that's what our business is built around. We started off with those assessments to kind of understand ourselves, build self-awareness, and then understand how we work together as business partners. But I think that that also translates to how we work with clients. Like we, we kind of take our own medicine in that regard, that it starts with knowing yourself and then the, the good decisions follow from there and the good interactions. How many times have we done that with spouses or other you know, family members? T- tell me what you take from being a business owner that applies to being a good advisor. Because not every advisor owns the practice and can kind of put their imprint on it. How does the business ownership translate to being a good advisor? Well, we work with a lot of business owners. Over 50% of our client base actually much higher than that, are, are either current or former business owners. And we kind of understand some of the back end of what goes into building the business and also some of the inner challenges with where do I focus my energy? Where do I focus my finances? How do I provide the right level of support to the business and to my life personally? And so I think being a business owner, I can relate to some of those struggles and, and some of those challenges of how things balance out or how things could balance out going forward. Beyond that, we spend a lot of time working on the business, which I love, planning, strategizing. And that's what we do for our clients too. We help them plan. We help them create strategies for their personal financial situation. And so that whole mindset coming at it from different angles and different applications, but it all kind of goes back to how do you how do you prepare for the next step? How do you control what you can control and and accept the things that you can't, but be able to kind of insulate around that. Yeah. That was one of the positive things that we learned from some early um, behavioral assessments that we took. There was one negative. I do remember one assessment that we took where they did an A to B comparison <laughs> of, our, of our scores. And there was a readout that said, here's the things that Dennis and Katie would get along with. And here's where they might be in conflict. And, and what was the, the summary of that? I think there was one sentence in there that jumped out at us. <laughs> Yes, that was our our Colby Index (laughs) assessment. That must have been about a year or two before we launched Morton Brown. And it very clearly stated, do not build anything together. Yes, yes. (laughs) Recently, we we were joking about, you know, that the don't ever build anything together. But even with that, what we've taken from it is to say, we need more people around us. Yes. There are certain things that you may not do well, I may not do well, but someone on our team might and look for those skill sets. It's the same thing with investing, right? How do you see people in the best cases, in the most successful family financial situations, how do they use the people around them? How, do, how does that humility come through? Oh, you know, I, I love that. I love when they do lean on their advisors. And I think there's, there's a level of expectation. They have high expectations for their advisors communicating and strategizing on their behalf. And, and I think that they should. I think the strongest, I'm going to say financially fit, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain level of 
assets, but the strongest level of confidence that we see amongst clients. I think they they do approach it with a mindset of, I don't know everything. That's why I have this professional team around me. I want to be read in. I want to understand it. I want to know what I need to know, but I'm going to lean on the other advisors and I'm going to expect that you're going to support me and that you're going to work with one another to support me. Right. How does someone know if they're if they're getting good advice, if they have a good advisor? Just what is a good financial advisor? How does someone know? That's really tough. That's that's really tough to to answer. There's a large piece of trust that goes along with it. So there's trust and confidence, confidence in knowing what your plan is and you know where your levers are. So you might have a direction that you're heading in. If there's a sudden left turn, you know who you're going to call and who's going to have your back and, and who's going to help you through the process. I think that level of confidence is a good indication that you have a good advisory relationship. When do you feel like you're doing your best work? How do you know? I feel like I'm doing my best work when you've reached that aha moment with clients, Hmm. presenting a a plan and going through a number of different scenarios, stress testing, kind of just talking through, this might be where you're headed, but what if this happens? What if that happens? And you see that, that confidence sort of building along the way. Sometimes it is like a light bulb moment. Sometimes you can actually see it happen where the client or the family just lets out a sigh of relief, like, okay, we're okay. Mm-hmm. We've got this. We're we're good. I think that's definitely one of the places where where I feel like okay, this is a good relationship, a good successful start to where we're going. But it's ongoing. You know, it's an ongoing conversation. Right. What What do you think is the biggest obstacle to getting to that aha moment from a client perspective? I think fear is one of the biggest obstacles. I think a lot of people and and families are fearful that they're not on track. Perhaps fearful that. They don't know something they think they should know, and they're concerned about making a mistake. I think that's often what gets in the way. Unfortunately, you know, in our industry, I think people are also afraid that we're all salespeople and we just want to sell them something and we're not necessarily going to have their best interest at the forefront at all times. We work in an industry where where I think there is some concern about taking that first step for any number of reasons. I think every entrepreneur recognizes something's broken that needs to be fixed. There's this idea, does the world need another financial advisor? There's tens of thousands of them, you know, hundreds of thousands probably, I don't even know the number. But what is broken that you think you're trying to fix by being an entrepreneur in this business? You know, I feel like this is kind of a, a little bit of a, a fluffy answer, but but confidence. I think people's confidence is broken. Hmm. Once again, I think there are a lot of different reasons for for why that may be, but that's what I'm setting out to do is to help build greater confidence in people and within their financial lives. Everybody's goals are going to be different. Everybody's balance sheet's going to be different. Everybody's income streams, taxation, everything else is going to be different. But regardless of, of what's going on in your financial world, there is a place of confidence that you can get to. If you're, you're not feeling settled, you're not feeling like you're on the right track or on the right page, help build that understanding and that knowledge base and, and that comfort level to get you to that place of confidence. That's, that's my goal. It's interesting you bring up that feeling of confidence is, is what is broken in your mind. Where, where do you think that starts? Is, is that an adult development? Is it something that's rooted in childhood relationships with money? Where do you think that comes from? We all carry something with us from our, our childhood, from our experiences. Sometimes some of that lack of confidence may be carried through. Other times it just may be, and, and we see this often with families that we work with too, where it hasn't been the priority, it hasn't been the focus to put a plan in place or to be intentional mm. about where the dollar is coming in, 
are going at the end of the day. And, and so to look up and realize this has gotten unwieldy. There are too many moving pieces, too many decisions to be made, and some really big goals looming shortly. Mm. There may have been a point in their life where they were very confident, but now there's there are some cracks in the facade of that because life has taken over. How has your relationship with money changed over time? And follow up to that, how does that inform the way you advise people now? That's a good question. I think that I've, knock on what I think I've been pretty fortunate to have a, a pretty healthy relationship with money. I did not grow up with wealth. My family was not wealthy. It actually, when I was younger, when we turned 13, I'm one of four kids, we were in charge of all of our expenses outside of food. Wow. By the age of 13, I had to buy my own clothes. I had to pay for my own entertainment. Now I was fortunate. My parents were also small business owners. So there were opportunities for me to work within their business or babysit, work at the pizza shop, everything else. I had, I think, eight jobs by the time I graduated high school. And so I think that was drilled into us from a young age. But then also it was drilled into us that we had to save 50% of our earnings when we were younger. Wow. And so not only did I have to buy everything starting at age 13, but I had to do it with, you know, I had to earn twice as much money to buy that yeah, thing. That, there's a net number. You're, you're learning the net, the net number. Oh, wow. Exactly. Yeah. And so so the savings was really ingrained in me from, from a young age. And even my first job out of college, oftentimes starting in this industry, you're starting out with a low pay. My very first job, I made $24,000, but I still saved almost 20% of that. And, and that was my goal on a year over year basis. So I've always had that kind of relationship, I guess, in that savings was really impressed upon me, more so than the spending. I don't track my spending as much as I track my savings personally, but you know, there are different different things that work for different people. Yeah, you, you and I are different in that in that regard. Yeah. Uh, so really strong savings background. It's not surprising that you kind of leaned into finance when it came time for college. Is there anything from your upbringing that you've had to unlearn? I don't know if there are things that I had to unlearn specifically, but there are things that I, I did not learn growing up. My parents really didn't have investments and investing was not a conversation that took place. Um, really personal finance conversations really didn't take place. I have no idea if they had any life insurance growing up. I know they had wills drafted when I was in college. I don't know if they had anything beforehand. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I just, I don't know. So there were a lot of things that I had to learn. And I do think that that's one thing my husband and I are very intentional about with our kids to at least a degree giving them an idea of what it takes to run a household, letting them know that there's much more to protecting the family than just savings in a savings account. We have different accounts for different purposes. And, and as they get older, kind of cluing them in more and more along the way. But I don't think there's anything specifically that I had to unlearn. I just had a lot to learn. Mm, interesting. What about as a business owner? Early on, you, you had a finance major, finance economics. You were an early adopter of the CFP program. So you get your CFP early in your career. You were a young partner at an advisory firm. Mm -hmm. And now you have your own advisory firm. What are the things that, is there anything you've had to think differently about or that, that you've evolved a little bit and you're thinking about how, how the business of advice is run? You know, that's, that's interesting. I think differently about how a business is run. And as I mentioned, in running the business and being intentional about goals and different initiatives, I think under Morton Brown, those are very active and fruitful conversations. They're things that we, we talk about a lot. 
behind every initiative, behind every goal, it's making the client experience better. How do we make it better? Growing up in this business, it was always about same thing. I want to service my clients well. I want to get to know them. I want to understand them. Now as a business owner, it's all about we have the ability to make this the best possible experience because we can control the different things that we're going to do here. And so there's more freedom Mm. as a business owner in an advisory firm, being able to kind of look out across the industry and all of the different areas that support the industry to say, okay, who's doing it really well? What are the tools out there to help us communicate better than we ever have before? Coming up on three years of, of having your name on the door, what have you learned about yourself and about your clients? I think the three years have taught me it's okay to step out of your comfort zone. It's good to step out of your comfort zone. It's good to challenge yourself. It's good to acknowledge and continue to acknowledge that other people around me are far better in certain areas than I am to really lean on the community around us. Dennis, you and I have been working with a a business coach pretty much since we launched and to really utilize him find out from him, you know, how are other people solving for the things that we're trying to solve for? How have others launched this plan or this initiative? And and that's been so helpful. I think continuing to build that awareness over the last three years has been just one of the greatest things that I've learned. And and that's never going to slow down. That's yeah, it's it's <laughs> it compounds, right? That's a cumulative right. thing. You don't once the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Has it given you any different perspective on the people you serve being, as you said, responsible for all phases of that outcome from the investment side to the the technology they use and, and all of those things? Does it make you think differently or recognize different aspects of the client relationship? I think I've personally migrated in this business and it has accelerated over the last three years from thinking about the work that we do as leading with the investments supplement with a financial plan to really kind of flipping that to leading with a financial plan, the investments support that, but how does that all play into the bigger life question? Right. So it's interesting to have those broader conversations around what are your philosophies around debt? What are your philosophies about supporting your adult children and supporting the charities that you do or, or charitable giving in general? Having more of those conversations in tandem with the financial plan and, and just assigning the right level of priority to the different aspects of of the work that we do. Mm -hmm. I think we're going through a tremendous shift across the financial world. It's it's very exciting. And I've, like I said, that that piece has just accelerated tremendously, I think, since we've launched our firm. One of the interesting things that I've discovered about you over the years is that you are very purposeful when it comes to planning and and love that work, the the very detail-oriented work that goes into all those moving parts. But your relationship to the stock market, (laughs) <laughs> and it's been a powerful conversation because, you know, the headlines, we're going to turn on the evening news tonight and you're going to see the Dow is up blank. The Dow is down blank. It's it's numbers. It's this moving target. And I've heard you say, enough. Tell me about your relationship to the stock market and put that into context for somebody who's thinking about their priorities. I love that you brought that up. Been a bit of an inside joke for a long time. <laughs> that I really don't like the stock market. And I know I complain about it all the time. Once again, investing, it's such a powerful tool. I mean, it's it's an incredible 
thing to be able to invest and compound your money over time and to see it grow. And that's where you do it. That's where it happens. But it's such a roller coaster on any given day. There can be such a roller coaster. It's not always, but it can be such a roller coaster. And I think that often there's a hyper focus on what did the market do today? Where are we headed? Is it going to drop? Is it going to? And yes, it's important to have a certain level of awareness but to keep it in the context of the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm constantly striving for is to keep it in the proper context and to recognize if there's a drop in the market, it's going to come back. I can't tell you when, but it's going to come back. It it has. And every time we have a, a large sell-off, it feels like it's different. It right. feels like, right. oh my gosh, this is the one. But if you look back over history, It's just happened so many times and it always comes back and it always trends up. That being said, I do recognize where there are certain periods within family lives where the timing of that drop can be more impactful than other times. So Mm -hmm. early years of retirement, I completely recognize where there is a concern that if we go into a recession during the early years of retirement, at the same time that you're pulling money out of your account, Yes, that is a very unsettling feeling. But those are all things that when we do financial plans, we want to stress test that. We want to see what that looks like. We want to help clients understand, okay, if that happens, then B, here's our backup plan. Right. And so once again, keeping it in the proper context. So, you know, it's an awkward conversation that's happened on more than one occasion is take a year like last year, which was positive for the stock market or, or even um, the year before, which was, which was a really good year, when we'll get a compliment. And someone will say, hey, you did a really good job last year. Markets were up. (laughs) Because the truth is, we have very little to do with that. If you're giving your advisor credit for the weather, right? That's that's what that's really it's like crediting the weatherman. Yeah. When ideally it's did you build the right shelter so that you can have the right exposures at the right times? I mean, that's probably a better, a better analogy. I don't think advisors should be gauged on the snapshot of performance on the 31st of the month. Exactly. That's challenging. Yeah. That's not the metric. No, I I agree completely. And that is something very intentional for us where we don't hang our hat on the performance. The asset allocation influences performance. That's the extent of our influence. Right. I would much rather explain why the performance was what it was, why you know things were as conservative as they were, as aggressive as they were, and not, there's the number, let's take credit for it. There's a why it is, it did what it did, and how it sets you up for the future and puts some perspective there. I think it's a more constructive conversation. Yes, I agree. My father has this line that he's used for, for decades. Uh, we're big baseball fans growing up, and, and he would always say, when I become the commissioner of baseball, the first thing I'm going to do Right. He's got this punch list and it changes every year. If I made you the commissioner of the financial industry, I put you in charge. What's the first thing you do? Oh, geez. Unfortunately, this can't be done. But if I could wave a wand to do anything, I would make sure that advisors always worked in a fiduciary capacity Mm -hmm. and just always put the best interest of their clients first. Yeah. This came up recently and I think tied into that also is having some kind of path to this career. Oh, yeah. You and I have had such different paths. Cody in our office has had such a different path. To get to the point where you're delivering advice at a, at a qualified level with a certified financial planner or a comparable credential, there's no straight path. And this is an industry that eats its young. So it's so hard to break through because it's not like you go to medical school, 
do your resident internship residency and then your white coat everything else or a lawyer where you pass the bar there is no standardized entry method to get people in and i think it just washes out really good people and some of the people with the right motivations don't end up getting to this stage and it's unfortunate i think that's one of the things we've talked about from the beginning like how can we get more people that hungry humble smart mentality into the chair in an industry that rewards kind of sales culture yeah. I think that's the other thing too, is, you know, there's a ton of regulation within the financial industry, but I think whatever it takes to remove those sales incentives and, and to change the conversation about how to incentivize advisors to do good quality work for clients, mm-hmm. because I do think that that is a lot of the challenge. I think that there are some great advisors that are just trapped inside of a model that doesn't support the work that they truly want to do. And, right. and I think that's very unfortunate because it's, it's the clients that, that end up paying for that at the end of the day. Sure. Let's talk about state of the industry a little bit. Some of the characteristics that are behind the scenes that, that a client might not be aware of with an advisor. So what are some things that, that can inhibit an advisor's ability to deliver advice in, its, in their best capacity? Too many clients. And unfortunately, as are many industries, we are in an an aging industry and in that I think that problem is going to be exacerbated. Mm-hmm. I think it, especially at some of the larger Wall Street firms where there may be non-competes in place where it's not necessarily easy for an existing advisor to decide that they want to go elsewhere. But then as the retiring population retires, if there aren't enough younger advisors coming up, that just balloons the books of the advisors that are there. And we've heard this, we've read it, we've seen it in studies that there are a number of Wall Street firms or Wall Street advisors that might have 500, 600, 1,000 clients on their books. And they may have every intention to serve those clients well, but they just can't. The capacity just isn't there. Right. So when we look to our right and to our left, we don't see many mid-career advisors, You know, people with 15, 20 years of experience and some runway ahead of them still, because so many of them either washed out during that sales culture um, orientation period or training period, or they were fired during the great financial crisis. And, and most of the major firms, the large employers that have thousands upon thousands, they didn't do a lot of hiring 10 or 15 years ago. And now they're looking around saying, oh my gosh, where is everybody? We have more demand for our advice, fewer people to provide it, and it's just creating a, a big bottleneck that's something that I think is people are going to feel. They're going to look around and see, uh, I'm not really getting that attention that you described. Yeah. That sometimes can be the case. Yes. And, you know, I think one of the other sad things about it is that I think clients or families, individuals don't necessarily know that there's a whole different world out there. It could be a completely different experience. And so they've been kind of trained that the conversations I have with my advisor are going to be maybe this narrow in scope. I'm just going to ask them about the portfolio because that's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. Or if I need something done in my portfolio, I need to be the one to initiate it. I need to reach out to them and ask them. Whereas we like to run our business much more proactively. We want to get in front of that. We want to make sure that we're putting things once again in the right context and that that we are checking in on our clients frequently to see how they're feeling about things, make sure they know what's going on, make sure they're they're getting their statements, they can log online, they can see if they have any questions. And, and so I think there's a whole robust relationship that can exist that people may not know about. Yeah. And, and that's 
one of the reasons why I wanted to pull this topic onto the podcast, I mean, we focus on leadership decisions and everything else, is that if you can't communicate effectively, you can't lead. And if you have so many relationships that you can't amplify and you can't reach them, it's really difficult to influence the way that someone in your position should be influencing, right? That, that's kind of the expectation. On that topic, what have you learned about yourself as a leader in your time as an entrepreneur? I've learned to be much more comfortable speaking up. I've learned to be much more comfortable holding myself out there. And I can do that because we have an awesome team around us. And I've learned that in order to lead well, and hopefully we're leading well, that you really need the support of others. And it need to, once again, kind of going back to that, that awareness, being aware that I'm not going to have all the answers and that's okay mm-hmm. in accepting that. I've also learned that people are seeking leadership. They want somebody to help them figure this out. They want somebody to to be vocal and advocate along with them. And so I've definitely learned to build a greater comfort level, I think, with the leadership aspects of helping to run the firm. For you, what is the great opportunity here over the next 10, 15 years? What's the brass ring to reach out and, and grab in your career? I think there are two opportunities. On the whole, I think there's a huge opportunity to raise the bar and to properly set client expectations Mm -hmm. so that they do expect more from their advisors. And even if they're not working with us, I, I want them to have the expectation that they're going to get a holistic approach to their wealth management situation and that their advisor is going to be proactive on their behalf. I think that would be a huge win to raise that bar and the expectation for the value to be received. I think the other huge win, and this is more specific to Morton Brown, is to bring that confidence to as many families as we possibly can. As we're growing and bringing on more advisors and working with more families and always kind of keeping that front and center, I think there's so much potential in really impacting this community and beyond by helping to build that confidence and really truly provide quality advice. Now, you, you kind of launched kind of straight line path into becoming a a financial planner. If it wasn't a financial planner, what would you have been? That's a great question. Something in math and sciences. I don't know exactly what, but that's always what I enjoyed academically growing up. But it would have to be in front of people. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it would be, but there would have to be relationship connection with it. I, I would never be able to sit behind the scenes all the time internally. I feed off of the external social aspects. Right. You, you wouldn't be a monk who's expert at calculus or something like this, just off, you know, contemplating math. Yeah. I always like exploring the right-left brain dynamic. There's artists in your family. What's the most creative thing that you get to do or that, that you think you've done in a very numbers-oriented business? I think one of the most creative things is to think creatively about those connection points with clients, to step back often and hopefully try to think about things from their perspective. Mm. How do they want to be communicated with? What are the things that are top of mind? How can we present information in a streamlined, clean, short (laughs) presentation that really gets at the heart of what they're looking for? Mm -hmm. And so to constantly think creatively about how we're doing what we're doing from the client's perspective and how that's received and valued. Yeah, I think it's such a hard epiphany to get to where where you realize just because something makes a lot of sense to us, that might be the exact wrong answer for the person sitting across the table from us. There's a creativity in translating that, Mm -hmm. simplifying it, filtering it, all all of those things. Again, communication, 
Mm-hmm. So what would people be most surprised to know about the work that a financial planner does? I think people might be surprised to know how much work we put into the background of what they receive. Mm. So how much work we put into the background of the tools and the reporting and everything else that we use in, in the design elements of it in thinking through how best to present, but also how much work is put into the background for each of their individual cases. We are definitely not cookie cutter. There's a lot of similarities between a number of the families that we work with. But when we sit down and we go over the five scenarios that are most important for that family, we've probably looked at 25 other ones, mm-hmm. nuances of those, because we want to drill down to what makes sense for this family. How do we best present it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because you have the flexibility to do any number of things, to focus any number of ways. Choosing to do that creates more work, but it creates better outcomes. What's the best piece of advice you were ever given? I'm going to share actually two pieces of advice that I was given. One of them is that you are in charge of your own happiness mm. and, and to always keep that in mind. It doesn't matter what happens. It's what I choose to do with it that makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. And also that the world doesn't owe you anything. Mm. Things can be unfair and that's just the way it's going to be. And that's okay. So I think both of those together have really come in handy. (laughs) I expect that second one has helped with a little bit of that Zen approach for the stock market is to say, I don't need to get worked up over that volatility. It is what it is. It's going to be, but it's not worth my emotional investment in the highs and lows to still accomplish what I need to accomplish. Is, Is that fair to say? Yes. So there's one thing we haven't talked about in your background, which is you're an athlete, you're you're a competitive person. So I want to ask you about the influence of sports in your life and leadership. So which of these three has contributed most to your success as a business leader and financial advisor, running, tennis, or rugby? (laughs) They have all contributed. (laughs) So I grew up playing tennis. And then I made the the logical transition to rugby in college. Right. So I played four years of rugby and then- Same equipment. Yeah, pretty much. A racket would have come in handy. Um, (laughs) And then really picked up running kind of post-college. And I think the tennis really taught me to take things with stride. You know, anybody that plays tennis knows that traditionally you leave your emotions outside of the court. You really have to train yourself to take a deep breath and not let your opponent see how frustrated you are, not to show any frustration on the court and and to be able to set the pace appropriately, Mm -hmm. to slow yourself down when you need to and speed yourself up when you need to. It's a very individualized sport. So so I think there was a lot of patience and just that recognition of I need to keep a calm. I think in rugby, I didn't even know what rugby was until somebody down the hall from me, my freshman year in college said, Hey, I'm going to try this thing. And and I think that that's really that go for it attitude that I'm going to work really hard and I'm, I'm going to work through some pain Mm. and I'm going to stick with it. And so I think there was a lot of that, that grit that that you kind of work through a bit with rugby. I think that's a lot of what I've taken from there. 
And then the running is, once again, it's a patience game. It's a long view. You know, if I'm training for a marathon or running in a marathon, I I wake up that morning and say, all right, for the next four hours, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to have to pace myself. And at at times it's going to be painful. And I'm going to be very happy with with the work. And I have to trust in the training up to that point also. Mm -hmm. I know that if I put in the work on the front end, that that day is going to be a great day. Right. And so I, I think each of them kind of provide their own lessons in different ways. You know, we start off uh, every one of our morning meetings, we start off with uh, everyone sharing a win from the day before. And one of the characteristics that I think you, you bring into the room figuratively these days is that grit and tenacity, just the, willing to take a long view. But you need to have wins along the way. In the arc of your career, what's the most memorable incremental win along the way to the long-term goal? Launching our firm, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were definitely some other highlights along the way. As you mentioned, I pursued my CFP, the Certified Financial Planning credentials, literally as quickly as I could. By the time I was 25 years old, I got all my other licenses and everything else, and then I dove right into the CFP, and you had to have so many years of experience and everything else. So that was the soonest I could get it. And I just, I was so thrilled. I felt like that was my big step into this world of financial planning that I love so much. Yeah. I think we've talked about how everyone has this this journey to finding that, that authentic version of themselves. And then the second half of that is taking that and delivering that version of yourself to an audience of people who can benefit from it. And I definitely see that in those stages of, of your career. I wanted to touch on one last thing. You, you're on your second stint as a board member of Valley Youth House, yeah. which is an organization I know you're, you're very um, proud of. Tell us a little bit about the work that Valley Youth House does and, and how it serves the community. So Valley Youth House does so many incredible things for this community and beyond. They are all throughout Eastern Pennsylvania and even into Western Pennsylvania. Their primary focus is really helping to support children in foster care and growing out of foster care and, and being contributing members of society and giving them all the tools and equipment and everything that they need to do that. That's the main part of what they do. And they also provide shelter services, street outreach programs, anything to help support youth and kind of at-risk families. And they have been busy and they are just doing in- incredible work. If you're interested in learning more about Valley Youth House, you can find them at valleyyouthhouse.org. So, Katie, anything else you'd like to share with our audience about the, the path that you're on in your career or some of the things that have been meaningful to you? This this journey of Morton Brown Family Wealth is has been incredibly rewarding and I'm so excited for the future and beyond. I mean, this this community, I did not grow up in the Lehigh Valley. I, I grew up in Michigan and then came here, as mentioned, in, in 2003. And I feel like we have really great roots here now. Mm-hmm. And I love the connections and the community and just... I think there are so many opportunities here in the Lehigh Valley, and I'm so grateful and thankful for them. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks for being candid in these answers. It's really uh, great to share some of your story and some of, some of the work that you're doing. If you want to reach out to Katie, you can reach her at kbrown at mortonbrownfw.com. And Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Dennis, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is fun. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.